Hey everybody, I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And this is Bound by the Cloak. If you've ever taken a psychology class, I'm sure you've heard of the Stanford Prison Experiment. If you haven't, the Stanford Prison Experiment is known to be one of the most well-known psychological experiments of all time. After 52 years, the experiment is still widely talked about and criticized for its unconventional nature as a research experiment at the time. Originally intended to be a two-week simulation of what a prison environment would be like, the experiment led by Dr. Philip Zimbardo only lasted one week from August 14th to August 21st, 1971. The participants of the study were local community college or Stanford University students who were paid $15 a day. The students were split into two groups to play either the role of a prison guard or of a prisoner. We tracked down Rich Yako, who played the role of a prisoner, to learn firsthand about his experience of being a participant in the experiment. Rich Yako is currently an adjunct professor in the broadcasting department at Ohlone College in Fremont, California, as well as an independent media producer who took part in Philip Zimbardo's Stanford Prison Experiment to see how the outcome of this experiment would inform and shape his view of the world around him. Rich, thank you so much for being with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Great. Um, Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. My name's Rich Yako. I was in the Stanford Prison Experiment more than half a century ago. Uh, It was just a few days in my life. Uh, I worked in media uh, for the last 20 years or so. I ended up teaching media. And I'm still, even though I retired from full-time teaching, I'm teaching part-time at a community college. And what do you teach in the community college? I'm teaching a live uh, TV news class, so they do a a broadcast live uh, once a week during the semester. They concentrate on learning reporting skills, and then we also have students that concentrate on the behind the scenes of producing a live show. Rich, if you could um, tell us how you heard about the Stanford Prison Experiment and what made you want to be a part of it. Well, in the summer of 71, uh, I had completed an AA degree at local community college. I was kind of figuring out how to stay out of the draft. I was looking for a summer job, but I ran across the ad in the, I think it was the San Jose Mercury News, uh, saying that there was a prison experiment and uh, they wanted people to uh, sign up for it. And I thought, well, uh, it was in the middle of the Vietnam War. I was concerned about being drafted. Wasn't sure if what I would do if I was drafted. I had planned to not serve. And so when I saw that there was a prison experiment, I thought, well, maybe this will give me kind of an idea uh, if I end up going to prison, uh, maybe it'll give me some insights on that. Did you anticipate going to prison or you were just curious? I did anticipate it because since I uh, had some problems getting into the school as a transfer student, they had accepted me as a freshman, but now as a junior, uh, there was no room in my major as a filmmaker. So I was wondering that year I was becoming eligible for the draft. So even though I had a student deferment, uh, that meant that 71 was going to be my full uh, year of eligibility to be drafted. And my number was 10. So oddly enough, 
they weren't calling tens in the summer. They didn't call tens again until the next January. And that would be, I'd be eligible for the first three months of the year. So there was a really good chance that I could have been facing the draft if I hadn't been, uh, you know, still maintaining my student deferment. That's right. Because if you're a student, then you're not going to get drafted most likely, right? Uh, Yeah, they had some weird rules. After the Stanford prison experiment, I did continue at a community college and the student body in those days, they actually, your your fees actually paid for a draft counselor. And so I worked with the draft counselor to see how I would contact the draft board uh, for making sure that I could maintain my student eligibility. And oddly enough, even though I had protested President Nixon, he was the reason why I didn't get drafted because he put a moratorium on drafting for the first three months of uh, 72. And so I dropped all of my appeals. I was eligible to be drafted the first three months of 72, which they would have called my number in January. But since there was a moratorium, uh, I was out of the draft. So even though I didn't have a student deferment was declined for me uh, at that point, Nixon is the reason why I ended up not getting drafted. And I ended up not finding out if I really would have been willing to stand by my, you know, my my values and actually have gone to prison instead of fighting in the war. Yeah, I mean, you really lucked out there. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> do you suspect that other young men that took part in the Stanford prison experiment were trying to do the same thing? I'm not really sure why why they would have signed up. You know, I, I know many of them were, were Stanford students. You know, some of us were not. And so uh, I don't know what their reasons were. And, you know, I really only got to speak with some of them during the experiment. We had kind of a, a debriefing or whatever it was, I think, when the experiment was finally over. They brought us all together, but we really didn't get to talk to each other. And oddly enough, it wasn't until years later when uh, occasionally I'd get interviewed for shows like this uh, that. I actually finally got to talk to the main guard that we called John Wayne. And it had been, I think, 40 years on the 40th anniversary. And so it was kind of uh, odd to finally get to talk with him outside of the experiment. Why'd you guys call him John Wayne? I think his name is actually Dave Eshelman, but we called him John Wayne because of the way he acted in it. It looked like he was uh, trying to be, you know, John Wayne was this big, you know, macho uh, movie star, primarily Westerns. And even though I found out years later that Dave had decided to wear the sunglasses and kind of act like, I think it was the guard in Cool Hand Luke, which was a movie that <laughs> Paul Newman had been in. I, I I don't know who named him that, but that's who we as prisoners started referring him to. In terms of being a prisoner or being a guard in the experiment, how did that turn out? Was it by choice? Was it randomly assigned? Well, I learned after the experiment. Now, when, when they interviewed us, they did give us a, a psychological test uh, to determine, uh, you know, where we are at. And I learned after the experiment that they said basically all of us, you know, for right in the middle, we were just, you know, typical average uh, young men. And when they asked each of us what we prefer to be in the experiment, well, I said prisoner. And I think they said every single person who applied that they actually accepted into the experiment had chosen being a prisoner. So I, you know, I don't know if that's just because, you know, in those days there were, you know, civil rights movement, there were, you know, the anti-war movement. And I think just most of the people my age, my generation, you know, cons- well, not most of them, but but the ones that I hung out with, and I guess the ones that would sign up for the experiment all chose to, you know, you know, identify more with a prisoner as opposed to somebody who was, you know, part of law enforcement. I'm curious, what expectations did you have for the study? What did you yourself think, you know, that you would get out of it? 
as I mentioned, I really wanted to find out, you know, if I was really experiencing a, a prison situation, you know, would that change my attitude when it came to deciding not to serve uh, and, and to stand up for the draft? And I think at the time I had a little bit of knowledge, you know, other than TV shows, I, I knew someone that had been in, in a prison situation. So I had a little bit of idea, a little bit what it was like, but I thought this would perhaps, you know, give me a, a clearer feeling, even though, you know, you can learn about how things go until you're actually in the situation. It's hard to, to tell how you're going to react. And how was the experiment explained to you? What did they tell you was the purpose of the experiment? You know, I can't recall if they told me beforehand what it was. You know, I think they basically summarized it was a prison experiment. And I think we did have, I, I can't remember now, I know I met individually with, uh, I think, Dr. Zimbardo, and I forget who I originally got interviewed with, but I don't recall if we actually had any meetings or any briefings or anything before the experiment actually started. And in terms of the actual experiment, can you go through the first day you got there? You know, since I wasn't a Stanford student, I wasn't living in Palo Alto. I actually lived uh, in Sunnyvale, which is just a little while away from there. Uh, and so what they had me do was they told me, OK, here's an address on University Avenue in Palo Alto. Show up to this house. So I was dropped off there. They invited me into the home. I stood in the entryway, and then they had a Palo Alto policeman arrest me there. And so that's where it started for me. Uh, I know I saw some of the footage later on that showed, you know, one of the prisoners being arrested at their actual home. And I guess, you know, the neighbors and everybody. But for me, you know, it wasn't my home. I don't know whose home it was. Uh, it was a nice home on University Avenue. I was assuming maybe it was Dr. Zimbardo's. Maybe it wasn't. But, you know, the neighbors, I, I don't know, you know, who would have been watching and noticing a police car come off, you know, come up and, and haul somebody away in handcuffs. But uh, I think the thing they did, I can't remember if it was on the way to the police station, but I think from the police station to the actual prison, they did blindfold me. And I can't remember if they put you know, like a bag over my head or they just blindfolded me. And that was so that, uh, you know, I would have no idea where the prison was actually located. Uh, at the police station, uh, I can't recall if they took my fingerprints. Booking process was there. But once, you know, I was, uh, the blindfold was removed and I was at the prison, uh, I think I do recall call. And, you know, some of these memories might have come from watching some of the, you know, footage later on about what they did. But I think I do recall being, you know, I uh, have to be stripped, you know, all my clothes taken away. I was given what we were wearing it was kind of like a toga outfit. They maybe sprayed me before, you know, I put the toga on. They gave me like, uh, you know, almost like flip flops to wear. But uh, the one thing that surprised me was they put a, a chain and a padlock on one of my ankles. And so that was a little odd for me. And also, uh, I was expecting, you know, were they going to shave my hair? Now, I had shoulder length hair at the time, and uh, they didn't make us do that. So, But I think they did give us something to kind of, uh, I don't think it was a bandana. It wasn't really a hat, but it was a way to kind of keep our hair covered so that it wouldn't be as obvious that it was it was long. Because I think most of us had, had long hair and, uh, you know, mustaches or beards, whatever it was. And so they didn't make us get rid of any of that. It was the 70s. Yeah. yeah so that's... <laughs> And it was the early 70s, so it came, you know, right out of the 60s. So there was, you know, a lot of the protests and everything. And of course, you know, the, the, the anti-war movement was really strong in those days. Can you tell us about, I mean, obviously you didn't really have too much contact individually with everybody during the experiment besides, you know, you being a prisoner and, and whatnot. But can you tell us what types of people were involved? I guess 
somewhat the demographics of the people involved in the study. You know, most of us were white. I can't recall if he was my cellmate. I had, you know, my initial cellmates. And they, well, that was one thing, you know, they brought us into what was supposed to be a cell. It was obvious it wasn't, you know, a prison. There was no toilet in the cell. You know, it looked like a small office. They did have, I think, cots in there. Uh, and my first two uh, cellmates, pretty quickly after we were in the experiment, even though we were told, you know, by the guards and, you know, you only say your number and I was number 1037. Uh, you're only supposed to go by your number. You know, once we were in the cell, we we introduced ourselves to each other. Uh, and so I met uh, Doug Corpy, and I forget the other cellmate that we had at the time. And I can't recall if it was right from the beginning because, you know, cellmates changed as people exited the experiment and new people came in. But I think he was one of the original prisoners uh, and he was Asian American. So there was you know, not a not a lot of minorities, I don't think, were in it. Most of us were just, you know, typical white middle-class kids. How did you feel about that first day? Did you find it to be authentic at all? Or did you find it to be a, an experience that, in a way, made you feel like it was kind of similar to prison? Or did you kind of not feel that way just because, like you said, being you know arrested for the experiment um, and then going to the jail or prison, which is really what the basement of the psychology department at Stanford, you know, and the cell being like an office. I mean, what was the, I guess, level of authenticity for you? Well, I didn't really feel the authenticity. And, and you know, I, I think Doug Corpy was a Stanford student. And I think that's why, you know, they knew immediately, oh, this is the basement of the psychology department. <laughs> you know, I think I think he was majoring in psychology. So it's one of those things that, you know, that the secret location ended pretty quickly. Uh, and those of us that weren't familiar with, with Stanford, we found out right away too. And, and, and again, you know, I, I didn't really feel like a prisoner throughout most of uh, things. You know, there were rules presented to us. And I think, you know, we had to do different counts and such. The only thing that surprised me from the first night was, well, they woke us up and uh, I thought it was, you know, the next morning and it turned out, no, it was in the middle of the night and they had us, I don't know if they had us do a count or the exercise or whatever. And then we went back to sleep. Now, I know that if, I think I knew even then that if my sleep cycle, you know, was interrupted at the right time, I'd feel as if, hey, you know, I'm ready to go. So that's why I think when I woke up, it was, I think, maybe about four hours into the night. And for me, it, you know, hit my cycle right in the right spot to where it was like, oh, okay, time to get up. And so that was something that surprised me, you know, why are they waking us up in the middle of the night instead of just in the, in the morning? So uh, that was one thing that surprised me the first night. Because there's no windows in the basement, right? There, or those rooms, there's no light to tell you what, if it's morning or, or night, there's, no clocks, I assume. Right. And, and you know, one thing that, especially since I was studying like media production and actually been uh, interning at a local cable TV station, which in those days were just community channels. Uh, and I think I actually had a part-time job there. You know, I noticed their video camera at the end of the hall. You know, they had they had a camera because the, the hallway, I, think, I guess, was opened at one end and they, you know, they had set it up and tried to, you know, keep it dark or whatever. But that was obvious, you know, something we could see. And the doors, you know, they weren't cell doors. They had like a little window on them that I think they put, you know, some bars or something to make it look like, I don't even think they look like metal bars. They look like it maybe wouldn't, wouldn't sell. So yeah, a lot of things didn't really give me that full prison experiment. It was just the way that they were trying to treat us that, you know, we're adding more to it. Yeah. So it truly felt like an experiment to you. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the rules. Hey, you can't refer to this as an experiment. You can't uh, you can't call yourself by your own name. You know, you can't call other prisoners by their name. One of the guards, I think he was one of the nighttime guards, and you know, he'd be standing by our cell and you know, some of the guards told us their names. You know, we told them our names. So even some of the guards, I'm sure since, you know, I found out later that everybody had wanted to be a prisoner, even the guards that were in those guard roles didn't really necessarily, you know, feel comfortable in their roles and necessarily didn't follow all the things that uh, were supposed to be expected of them. The second day, things seemed to amp up a bit. Wasn't there an uprising, I believe, in the, the morning? Yeah, and I can't recall, you know, the timeline, but I know, uh, I believe it was my cellmate, uh, Doug, that, you know, was instigating because he was basically, forget what the reasons were, but, you know, maybe he was kind of like, you know, feeling the same way that many of us were that, well, this doesn't really give you the sense of a prison experiment. It's just kind of like, you know, it's uh, role playing and... I think maybe it started because of the way that, you know, some of the guards were starting to treat us and making demands of us. And I think, again, they were led by Dave Eshelman, who we called John Wayne. And, you know, Mr. Correctional Officer, I think, is one of the things they had to say and, you know, do this and that. And, and you know, whatever the things were, I think, I forget when it escalated to the point, but the guards at one point, they, they came into our cell to take our beds away from us. And that was something when we really rebelled to. And I can't remember why they got to the point of where they were so mad at us for, you know, not doing whatever it was they're having us do. But then they came in and said, okay, we're going to take your beds away from you. And so that's where I think we, you know, resisted. But I was not trying to do anything physical with them, just trying to hang on to stuff. But we had that resistance. And so for different things that we did, uh, they would put us, and I think they call it the hole. So it was kind of like their version of solitary confinement. And it was basically just some closets across the hall from the little offices we were in. And I mean, I went in there at least once, maybe twice or more. I don't know how many times. And to me, it was no big deal. It was kind of like, oh, this is this is the punishment I get. You know, this is this isn't really bothering me in any way. But how long uh, would you spend in uh, in the hole? I don't know if it was an hour at a time or if it was even longer than that. I mean, the, the one thing that was odd, you know, uh, as I mentioned, there were no toilets in the rooms. So they gave us like, I think, a coffee can or something, you know, and that's what we were supposed to use. It was rare that we'd be able to go to a real restroom. The one time I remember going to a restroom was they gave us, I think, toothbrushes and they were having us clean toilets. And that's where, uh, that's why I don't recall if he was actually my cellmate or we just, you know, we're talking there as we're cleaning toilets together. But he told me that, you know, hey, you know, we weren't able to take showers. I don't know how many days we'd been in there at times. It had been a couple of days and he was starting to develop a rash. And he said, yeah, you know, when I don't get to take showers on a regular basis, I get these reactions and I have a rash. can't remember who exactly was released when. I think Doug Corpy was the first one to be released because of uh, his, you know, rebellion and threatening, you know, different things. So, uh, and he was, you know, screaming out. If you watch some of the videos, it sounds like, you know, oh, I'm going, you know, I can't stand this anymore. And yet I knew talking with him and such, to me, it seemed like, no, he's just role playing because he wants to get out. He says, you know, I'm tired of being in here. I got better things to do. So, he, you know, he's trying to get out. But uh, I know in some of the video that, you know, the way people interpret it later, no, no, he was really having a breakdown. But uh, once he was released, you know, they started getting paranoid because he threatened to come back and break into the prison and, you know, get us all out of there. And (laughs) and they actually thought that was going to happen. 
Oh, but back to the the prisoner who had the rash. That was another thing that came out after it was over. They said, well, he had a psychological uh, reaction to the experiment, caused this rash, and so they released him from it. And so that was something that I knew from my experience. But no, no, it sounded like you know this had nothing to do with his mental state. This had to do with the fact that he knew he would get rashes if he wasn't allowed to take showers and and, and stay clean. There were some things, you know, after the experiment was over that came out that I knew, at least for the way I felt about it, didn't quite jive with what actually had taken place. And, you know, one was Doug being released and saying, hey, we're going to break you out. But they did, I forget what precautions they took. I think they took us all out of the prison. I don't remember if they were going to try to make it look like it didn't exist. So if somebody did come back, uh, they would say, oh, no, the prison, the experiment's over and you got here too late. So... I'm trying to think some of the other timelines. I'm not sure when they took place. I know on the Wednesday, I think it was a Sunday night that we started. And by Wednesday, they had a parole hearing. So it might have been Tuesday when they had a visitor's night. And my parents, uh, I didn't realize during the experiment how concerned they were about me. But I heard later on that my mother actually had been very concerned about my well-being because when she saw me, well, of course, you know, we weren't allowed to shave. We weren't taking showers. We were being woken up in the middle of the night. So we had our, you know, sleep disrupted. And when she, they saw me, it was kind of like, oh, my gosh, what's happening to our son? And so, you know, both my mother and father had been there, but, the, but I guess she actually wrote to Dr. Zimbardo. And uh, years later, I was finally able to get a copy of that. And I forget what she wrote, but it was like, you know, she was so concerned. And I was trying to reassure him, no, you know, I'm okay. You know, I might look terrible because we don't shower, we can't shave, they wake us up on the middle of the night, but I'm fine. You know, there was no reason for it. But obviously what she saw was a little more concerning. Also, I think they might have fed us better before visitor's night or something like that to make it seem like, oh, we're just so happy because I think we were getting like two pieces of bread with a piece of bologna in the middle of it. No condiments on it or anything. And just I can't remember what the breakfast was. For some reason, I remember the two pieces of bread and the um, the slice of bologna. I think we had that sometimes. So I don't know what the, the meal was for the big, uh, you know, visitor's night. I know I was released on Thursday, and so the experiment gained a reputation for all the, the strange things that happened, and those really strange things happened after I was released. And what happened was, the time I was 19 when the experiment started was supposed to go for two weeks. Well, the next week on the Monday was going to be my 20th birthday, and after I'd been there for a couple of days, and you know, we'd gone through the rebellion, we had tried different things, and I felt, hey, I've got enough you know, experience with this, and it's not going to really you know, prepare me any better than what I want. So when they said there was a parole hearing uh, on Wednesday, and if you, uh, oh, because I asked, well, how can I uh, quit the experiment? You know, I says, well, you can't quit. You know, you committed to two weeks. I said, Oh, and so that was actually the moment when I felt like I had imprisoned myself because I was told, you signed up for two weeks, you cannot quit. I found out after the experiment, if I had just said I quit, I could have quit. But during the experiment, when I asked them, I, I want to quit, what could I, you know, how do I do it? They told me no. Well, it wasn't the only thing I found out were lies uh, while I was in the experiment. When they were concerned about the escape, the break-in to, to release us all, I didn't realize at the time it was tied to it, but they brought me into a conference room and there was a young man and a young woman who I think they said were Stanford students who were part of a committee at Stanford that would kind of overwatch the uh, treatment of people who participated in experiments. And so they interviewed me about, well, how are they treating you? What's the food like? This and that. And then one of the questions towards the end, oh, we understand their plans for an escape. Is there anything about that you can tell me? So, well, no, I haven't heard anything about it. I found out afterwards that that 
that whole uh, situation was a ruse just to find out what the escape plans were. And so, you know, I was this trusting college student assuming that, well, yeah, you know, I mean, that sounds right. You've got an experiment going. You want to make sure people are treated right. It turned out it was just part of the uh, tactics of the, I guess, the guards or whoever else was running the experiment. And it's funny because for years, I don't think that ever came out anywhere. It wasn't until just a few years ago when I think I finally saw some information that, yeah, that took place and here were the reasons for that. Wow. So this is really more so an experiment on role-playing because that's what everybody really seemed to be doing. Again, a time that I, I felt really strange in it was during the parole hearing because I go in there and I'm trying to plead my case and there's three or four people and I forget the guy that was running the meeting. I found out later he had been an actual prisoner and had been consulting on the experiment. Oh, wow. For some reason, I think his name might have been Carlos. I don't recall how he introduced himself, but he was the one that was just like, okay, so, you know, you stole, I forget what they said I had stolen, right? And I said, no, I, I didn't steal anything. No, no, you've been convicted. You were this thief. Don't lie to us. And at that point, I felt like I could identify more with a prisoner or especially somebody who may have been innocent in the crime that they're convicted of because it's like, you know, you're innocent, but everybody is telling you, no, you're lying. You were this thief, you got convicted, you know, all these things that obviously didn't happen, but it really gave me that weird sense. It didn't necessarily make me feel like a prisoner, but it did make me feel like, boy, what if I was an innocent victim of the justice system? You know, how could you live with that? I mean, I was there just, you know, I think three days at that time. I can't imagine being there year after year. And of course, now, you know, with things like the Innocence Project, where you hear about people who have spent decades of their life until they're finally released. And you always wonder how many people, you know, were innocent that never got, you know, exonerated for whatever they were accused of. So that wasn't a very enlightening part of the experience for me. I know you had mentioned that the uprising was also caused because of the demands that the guards were placing on the prisoners. Can you tell us what some of those demands were? so vague now at this point, and I've watched some of the films. The, the one other thing that, that really hit me was how I behaved, because, you know, the one takeaway I've had over all these years when they, they said basically, uh, and I don't know if this was their goal, but to find out that, you know, the role that you feel you are in in society, you take on what society expects you to do in that role. And, you know, so people who are prisoners, you know, supposedly we became more passive and went along and guards, you know, became more... Uh, aggressive and controlling for the prisoners. Uh, the one thing that I realized, and I didn't realize until after the experiment, we were lined up and there had been a prisoner who, you know, I had known, I forget his name. I think he was in the cell next to me. We had talked, you know, a lot. And uh, it was kind of like the situation with Doug Corpy where, you know, okay, I knew he's acting one way for the guards, but, you know, I knew that he wasn't having a breakdown. He just wanted to get out of the experiment. Well, this other prisoner, I can't remember why he was no longer there at the time, but, uh, and I don't know if they were in the process of releasing him, but the guards had us all chant that he had been a bad prisoner. And, I went along with the chant and I'm thinking as we're chanting, it's like, well, he knows we don't think he's a bad prisoner. You know? I mean, this is just, you know, okay, we're tired of, you know, having the, these confrontations with the guards. We're tired of all this and that. Let's just go along with this thing. And then I find out after the experiment that no, he was listening to it while we were chanting and he broke down because he felt that his fellow prisoners felt badly about him. I mean, I, I, you know, you'd have to read more of the research, but that's my understanding is that, you know, he 
really took it as us being truthful. We're all chanting that he was a bad prisoner. And I went along with it, even though I didn't believe it. And that's something that, you know, I regret. And yet that really, you know, struck me as, yeah, you know, even though it was an experiment, there were things that I went along with because that was how I expected a prisoner would be in those situations. And so that was, uh, that was kind of enlightening to me, unfortunately, after the fact. Was it almost like survival for you? Well, you know, after I was told that I couldn't leave, I couldn't quit, that kind of changed my attitude because up until then I thought, well, yeah, this is a job. They say you can't call it a job. Well, it's a job and, you know, you can quit a job, right? Well, and then when they told me I couldn't quit, it was kind of like, okay, you know, I've learned since. I mean, you know, especially in the media industry, you sign contracts to do things. Uh, well, even when I was a teacher, if you sign a contract to take a teaching job, you can't quit that contract in the middle of year without jeopardizing your teaching credential. You have other ramifications unless they agree to release you from it. So here I was in the early stages of, you know, my getting ready to enter more of a full-time working uh, world and find out, boy, I made a I made a bad decision. I agreed to do something. And, you know, even though I figured, oh, fine, I'll go along for the next, you know, week and a half. I, at that point, I was like, oh, this is, I just have to be here now. I had no way to get out of it. I went to the parole board and I thought, well, great. If I get to be the one selected, I'm going to get to be released early. And as it turned out, they announced over the PA, the parole board has made their decision and prisoner 1037 will be the one being released. And I thought, oh, oh, good. I'm going to get out before my birthday, you know, next Monday. And uh, one of the other prisoners turned to me and said, oh, 1037, who's that? Well, that's me. Because we were calling each other by our names. And even though we had numbers on us, you know, it was kind of like <laughs> we didn't think of each other as numbers. And it's funny because the only reason I've remembered my number all these years, it's an FM radio station I listened to at the time, 103. So it was easy for me to always remember my number uh, after, you know, more than half a century here. So, but uh, so at that point, you know, and I forget some of the, you know, the big things that had gone on and, and oh, well, I, I know that by the time, I think even before the parole board, there had been so many prisoners released already and the new ones were coming in. Some of them, you know, were going to challenge the guards and this and that. And at that point for me, it was kind of like, hey, we went through that already. Great. You got your rebellion to do. So what? It's like, this is the same thing. New prisoners were in uh, and the ones who went along with all the guards and never participated in the rebellion, they were still doing that. You know, there's some new ones in that, you know, were having their own way to rebel. So when I found out I was going to be released, you know, and I was going to be out before my birthday, I thought, great. So I think it was late in the afternoon on Thursday when uh, I was finally called in and Dr. Zimbardo was telling me, well, you're, you know, you're going to be released. We'll give you your stuff back. We've decided to end the experiment tomorrow morning. And I said, oh, well, if I'd known that, I would have, I didn't need to be released. And no, it's too late. You can't go back in because uh, you know that the experiment is going to end tomorrow morning. And I believe it was that night where some of the most outrageous things that you, you've seen videos and such took place. And so that's always, I've always been curious, you know, if I hadn't been paroled, would I have gone along with the stuff that they had those prisoners do? And I was surprised how they participated because some of the ones that participated were the ones that when they first got there, they were rebelling. You know, why was it at that point they decided to go along with it? And those things I'll, I'll never know. What were the guards like? How were their interactions with each other? Was it that the one warden kind of controlled everything and people just kind of followed his direction or were they just kind of still on an individual level doing their their own thing and and having their own thoughts and opinions i don't know if you could speak to that 
when we were actually having all the guards, you know, and we were out of our cells and they were treating us, I think even from day one, all the guards were in their guard role. I think it was the daytime shift might have been where uh, John Wayne, Dave Eshelman was was the, the guard and he kind of, you know, became the leader of that shift. Uh, the other shifts, because uh, I believe there were three shifts and I can't remember who were necessarily the ones in charge. Obviously, the nighttime shift, you know, they had less interaction with us, even though maybe they woke us up in the middle of the night. But when they were in front of all the prisoners, you know, uh, and working together as a team, they all took on a role of a guard. Now, I think as the experiment went on, even the guards that had been less aggressive became more aggressive and more going along with it. You know, as I mentioned, I don't know if it was like the second day where, you know, okay, the guard's by himself, you know, we're having a chat through the little cell door and we're, you know, we're, we learn his name and he's talking to us. And, but, you know, that was kind of, you know, nobody's observing him at that point. I don't believe they had any, you know, microphones in the cells or any cameras or anything. So, you know, today they'd have all that stuff. But then, uh, you know, they basically had a camera at the end of the hall. And I don't even know if they recorded all the time as it was. So, you know, but even that guard, you know, would get more into the role of doing the things that challenging people and such. And just like, you know, when they when they broke, you know, came into our cell to, to pull all the beds out, I think it was, I'm sure it was more than just the three guards from that shift. They might might have brought in other guards just to sit there and because they knew there'd be resistance, even though there were only three of us in there, you know, we were resisting uh, what they were doing. So how many prisoners um, were there at one time and how many guards? There were three cells, each with three prisoners in it. And I thought there were three guards per shift. So with three shifts, that'd be, you know, nine guards, nine prisoners. Now, overall, I don't, I can't remember how many of us were released that were there initially. And there may have even been a prisoner that came in after somebody's released and maybe they got released before. All I know is that I was told I was the last one released before the experiment ended. And so I don't know if that meant there were maybe, you know, five or six of us that had been end up re being released beforehand. As far as guards, I don't know if any of them would have you know, stopped or quit before the experiment was over. And you had mentioned how some of the prisoners who were the most rebellious and anti-authoritarian, they shifted. So if you were a guard, how do you think your experience would have been? You know, I don't even know in the way that I was at in those days, if they had told me, okay, well, we've assigned you as a guard, I don't know if I would have taken, participated in the experiment. You know, as happens with a lot of people, you know, your attitudes change as you get older and such. But, you know, from some of the protests I had participated in and just attitudes towards the only law enforcement I dealt with were people I didn't know. You know, over the years, I've had family members in law enforcement, I've known people, and I understand it's even like this day and age, even though people who want to defund the police, they've got a lot of justification in the horrible things that have happened to people as a result of people in law enforcement who just use it as their own way of uh, mistreating people and, uh, you know, even to the extent of killing them. Unfortunately, I mean, that's, you know, it's probably always gone on, but now this day and age where people can actually record those incidents, it's different. But then again, it's not everybody. And unfortunately, you know, when you're part of a, a, 
profession where it builds up this bad reputation. I think even at the time in the early 70s and late 60s, there were even, you know, films coming out now showing, you know, cops that, you know, were dirty cops and such and with scandals in different law enforcement departments around the country. Even then we knew it. So for me to participate as a guard, I just can't imagine. It was not in me to sit there and, you know, to sit there and tell people what to do and just to force them to do things. Uh, I, I don't know what I would have had at that attitude. You know, maybe, you know, the ones who did agree to do it, they might have done it with the idea, well, I can be a good guard. You know, I don't have to be, even if they were, you know, had feelings like I did against law enforcement based on, you know, especially in those days, a lot of the reactions from things. I mean, it had been that many years since the 68 Democratic Convention where, you know, we could see all the horrible things that law enforcement did to the protesters and not even all that had come out until years later. Oh, plus 1970 when, you know, students were shot at Kent State. I mean, there were a lot of things coming from authority that gave a lot of us in college, especially at the time, reason to not want to be on that side of society and also disrespecting the people we would deal with because of those actions of maybe just a few, but it was enough at the horrendous things they were doing at the time to let us know that, hey, you know, this is wrong. And, you know, unfortunately, here it is more than a half century later, and there's still those types of abuses being done. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, that it's true these things are, are still happening. And I guess, what do you think was the most important thing that you kind of took from your experience in the study? You know, it hasn't been that often. I can't remember what year. It might have been the 30th anniversary. Maybe it was the 40th. But uh, I started going into, after I had my media career and such and did different things, I had the opportunity to start teaching. And so I ended up taking a teaching job at a high school in Oakland uh, that was focused around media. And while I was there, I was interviewed and can't remember who it was. It might have been for the Stanford uh, magazine that had one about an anniversary. But, you know, it finally hit me because I had students there that were in, you know, low-income area, a lot of violence, gang violence, you know, the gangs took over different school sites, you know, in, in Oakland at the time. I think maybe it still has that same influence. Our school was under, you know, they knew the neighborhood and everybody. If you weren't in this gang, you couldn't be in another gang because uh, we actually had somebody show up from another school that they knew immediately he was in a rival gang and they came on campus and the principal who was really street smart. It's the first time he wasn't sure he was going to make it home that night. So the students that I taught, you know, they had a lot of issues with safety and trying to stay out of gangs and such. But I realized that, you know, for many of them, they thought, well, society says, you know, I'm supposed to be this either going to a gang because I'm living in this area, poverty or whatever it is, or I'm not going to be ever as smart as the other people. Fortunately, it wasn't all of our students. Some of them, you know, went on and were able to break out of that cycle. But boy, you know, I really could see that for many of the students that I had because, you know, you hear it often enough from society, and especially if you don't have supports that oftentimes comes with being in a wealthier situation. If you're in poverty, you may not get as many supports uh, as you can to realize that, no, 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 this doesn't have to define who you are. You can use the skills you have, the talents you have. You can get help to go in the direction that maybe you want to go in. And unfortunately, I think that was one thing that I was the big takeaway. I realized, yeah, you know, even though you might think that we all seem to be 
be influenced by what society expects of us. And, you know, as I mentioned, even in that one incidence in the experiment where I go chanting about this other prisoner, even though I'm thinking, oh, he knows it's a bunch of BS. Well, no, he didn't know that. He doesn't know what my motivation was behind it. Just like years later, you know, I never really bought into uh, Dave Eshelman saying, well, you know, I just acted that way. You know, I wasn't sadistic. I was just acting that way because I did some acting and I wanted to take on this role and see what it would be like, you know, if I if I pretended to be this character I saw in Cool Hand Luke. And so when I finally spoke with him after the interviews we did, um, we, it was actually at the Stanford campus. They were short interviews. I got to talk to him a little bit. You know, I heard him say that and I finally realized, you know what? I guess that's not that different. You know, he 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 put himself in a role to play it and, and gave himself. And that just happened to be the one that he used from society. He said, well, this is how a guard should act. And unfortunately, you know, it didn't have maybe it didn't have anything to do with his own sense of morality, but he was willing to accept acting that way, it seemed, because he said, I'm just role playing. And so I guess it's easy for anybody to say, well, OK, I'm in this situation. This is how I'm supposed to act, so I'm going to act that way. And of course, you know, anybody can, you know, it it applies to so many things. I think that's why the experiments had such an impact on so many people. Uh, I mean, one is because I think Zimbardo's really good at getting publicity and promoting his stuff. But I think the core about it of, yeah, you know, you're going to go along and you, you know, if it's been in offices where you have people who have a toxic office environment, sometimes it's hard to be the one that speaks up and says, no, you can't get away treating other people people like that. This is not right. Or if you have a boss that's in a situation where they create a toxic environment, you know, and sometimes your only option is, okay, I've got to quit. And if you if you need the money and you decide, you know what, I'm going to have to go along with this certain thing just to be able to get what I need out of it. I don't know if that's that different. And I guess that's what it was for us being the guards and the prisoners. You know, we're here. I mean, the money wasn't great. You know, it was 15 bucks a day. And because we were prisoners, of course, we got room and board. But prisoners, we were there 24 hours a day. The guards, you know, they got their 15 bucks for being there, I guess, eight hours most of the time. So that was the big takeaway for me. What was Philip Zimbardo like? Well, I had very little interaction with him. You know, I think it was pretty sure I spoke with him and not one of his uh, TAs or, you know, whoever it was that uh, the ones that were, you know, working with him on the experiment. I can't remember if he was supposed to be the prison superintendent and one of the other people were the warden. So, you know, as far as conversations with him, that might have been, you know, one of the that and maybe one when I got hired in. Other than that, you know, we had the debrief, which was just, you know, all of us in the room at one time. And then there might have been just a little bit of correspondence over the year because it was it was kind of funny. Uh, I'll mention this, you know, working in media, I know that, you know, you sign release forms and such. And so they had us sign a release form uh, before the experiment started. And it said, we agree to let them, you know, use our likeness and our voice and everything we do, blah, 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 and all this media. And in exchange, they would give us copies of whatever they published. Years went by. I, I forget what book he came out with on it. We never got copies of the book. And after, I forget how many years later it was, I got a a letter or an email saying, do you mind signing this new release? Uh, We'll give you a gift card at Amazon or something like that. I said, fine, I'll sign. And the new release obviously eliminated all the obligations they had of giving us any copies of anything published. Uh, So I think maybe finally somebody looked back at those releases and thought, you know what? (laughs) So that was something I thought was interesting over the years. I think it's hard to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But how realistic do you think this experiment was in understanding the interpersonal dynamics and the power dynamics within a prison? 
You know, I, having never been in an actual prison, I don't know if I could compare those things. I don't know if anybody that, you know, like I say, the one former prisoner who was actually their consultant on that, I don't know how much he felt it got into that. You know, we were all college students. You know, we're very similar. We all were innocent of crimes. We all knew that we weren't going to be guards after this experiment. I, I, I'd i be surprised if any of them went into becoming law enforcement afterwards. Maybe some did. You know, I understand Doug Corpy, you know, he actually you know, did his career, I thought, working as prison psychologist for a lot of the time. And so that made had an influence on him saying, hey, you know, even just for a little bit. But for me, I used to share this with students sometimes because I, I started teaching high school about 20 years ago. Uh, there was a job to teach media. You know, I mentioned that I was in Oakland for about uh, 10 years and then I, or eight, nine years, something like that. And that was different than the more suburban, you know, middle class high school I taught at secondly, which was here in Fremont or, or actually next nearby in Union City. And so in Oakland, I don't know if they had psychology classes. I don't know if any of my students actually were that aware of me being in the experiment. I think some did if, you know, somebody came to interview me at the campus. But later on, the second high school I taught that, they did have psychology classes. And so, you know, all of a sudden somebody would walk in, they say, oh my gosh, you know, Mr. Yako, you were in the Stanford prison experiment. You know, they'd have questions and such. And well, even now I'm teaching college part-time and I had at least one student come up, oh, I can't believe you're in the Stanford prison experiment. What was that like. Plus, I even had, you know, faculty members at the, the high school I was at, you know, they were just, oh, I can't believe, you know, can you tell us what it was like and such. So there's always been that interest from a lot of people. Well, the odd thing was too, when the experiment ended, that fall, I went to visit my girlfriend at the time up at uh, Humboldt State University. And I arrived there, I think on a Friday afternoon, and she's in her psychology class. And it happens to be the professor brings up the Stanford prison experiment and she says, well, that's odd because right here he was in the experiment. So it was like, she got, I don't know if she got extra points or whatever it was for that at the time, but, uh, but credit. But it's, so it's been interesting, you know, but, but as I'd also share with students over the years, this was only five days in my life. And I know people have asked me over the time, well, how has it affected you? Did it change? You know, I don't really know this. It's affected me in the long term. Only if I focus on it, realize, yeah, you know, you can take on these roles from society. But uh, I have a friend who we, we taught together in Oakland, and he was at Kent State when all the shooting happened. And he happened to be the one that answered the phone when Life Magazine was looking for a photographer. And all the Life Magazine photos of that, those three days, or many days it was, he took them. Uh, the only photo, it's odd because he finally published a book a couple of years ago uh, with all his photos, because uh, fortunately for him, he's able to retain the rights. And you know, the one really iconic one of a student, you know, over the body, one of the dead bodies of a fellow student, that wasn't his. He was there, had different angles and stuff. But for him, he was more responsible for bringing those photos and keeping a part of history for the world. And, you know, over the decades since, you know, he, he had much stronger memories and it was, you know, a much stronger experience because it was real life happening at the time. For me, well, yeah, I was a prisoner in it, but I didn't really, you know, wasn't in control of anything. I was just kind of like a participant. And so for me, it didn't really have those lingering effects to it. But I still pointed out to my students, you know, 
how will you ever know if something you're participating in is something that affects the world so much? I didn't know it at the time of the prison experiment, and yet over the decades, it really has, you know, an influence. And even with came out to be some of the things that maybe were untrue at the time or some manipulation they did during the experiment, I think there still is a value in some of the takeaways of knowing that, you know, you got to be careful of what you assume you should be doing because of society. You really have to focus more of what you feel is right for you. Do you think that if if the experiment were done again today, maybe in a more modern, maybe more realistic way, do you think it would still be such an important study on conformity? You know, nowadays, people get so aware of so many different things so fast. I just can't see it. It's kind of like when you're on a jury, and even though the judge instructs you, you know, you don't start making a decision about this this trial until it's all over. Don't pay attention to anybody else, this and that. And yet you still get influenced, right? And I've only served on a couple of juries, but it's hard while you're going through that and listening to anything to not start making a decision about certain things. And so that's why I think if you knew we're going into an experiment, it's so easy to go ahead and do research and find out things, or maybe even as I was in those days, I had a reason why I wanted to participate. I wanted to find out if this was going to change my attitude about not serving in the military. Would that affect my decision? You know, would I go in as a conscientious objector instead of just somebody that refuses to serve? So we really don't know. But yeah, you know, in those days, it's much harder to find out uh, about things that may affect how you behave. And once you have that, it's really going to change how you do behave in it. So I think today would be really difficult to have one that would be very objective. And, you know, even that one that uh, the Stanford prison experiment, there were still things that weren't true objectivity because, you know, we all brought things as far, we, you know, what we thought we should be doing as either a prisoner or a guard. If the experiment was to be done again, how it would be done in different ways. And one thing I was thinking about, if the participants were people who were formerly incarcerated, that's a whole different Ooh, spin. <laughs> I, I don't, that's probably a really bad idea. Yeah. Well, you've got a great idea for a reality show now. You take <laughs> prisoners, make them the guards, and you've got former guards and oh, make man. them the prisoners, right? So, but Ooh. yeah. But, you know, I understand because I forget when they finally, you know, stopped allowing experiments like the Stanford mm-hmm. Prison Experiment. And I forget uh, some of the other ones they said that, you know, are just iconic ones. But Milgram and other studies like that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there have been... I think reality shows that have tried to do something where they come along. Yeah, I don't think they do it as a real prison, but I thought they've had some reality shows that, you know, were based on the idea of like the Stanford prison experiment. Plus, you know, uh, it's funny because I had a friend over the years, he said, you should really write a script about turn a movie. And then they finally made that movie, which I still haven't seen. But there was one before that that was done in Germany. And the one in Germany was just more like, let's just do this really crazy movie based on what would could have happened. And that one was just, I think it had a lot of violence and stuff. And it was just, you know, that one I did watch some of it was kind of like, oh my gosh, this was obviously, you know, I don't even know what was called the experiment or something like that. But it was was only inspired by the fact there was a prison experiment experiment. had nothing to do with the Stanford prison experiments. Yeah. I saw maybe like 15, 20 minutes of that one. And I was just like, nope, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) 
You know, it's funny. I, you know, I was asked by one reporter once, you know, well, have you seen the movie? It was just when the movie was coming out. Are you going to go see it? I said, well, no, I, you know, I hadn't really. And have you read it? You know, it was Zimbardo's book and I had, and then it was somebody else that was planning a documentary about the experiment and his funding didn't come through. So I ended up writing this uh, paper for a psychology journal. And I don't know if it's one you've had a chance to see yet, but uh, he got interviews, I think, with virtually everybody that participated. A lot of people, because I was always available if they call, because I live here in the Bay Area still. And that's why there's been several times I've been interviewed as a prisoner because I think I was accessible. You know, he was able to talk to a lot of people and found out stuff, you know, this is what really happened, right? So that's why it was interesting to see that. But but I think he told me that, you know what, everybody he's talked to, none of you have seen the movie and none of you have read Zimbardo's book. It's kind of like... And I don't know why it is. You know, I keep one of my sons keeps bugging me. Hey, come on, let's watch the experiment together. I want to see it. So maybe one of these days we'll watch the movie. How do you think the movies or the book would compare to your actual own personal experience? Do you think it'd be truthful to it or do you think it'd be like an exaggeration? Well, this one reporter did tell me he had, I think he had seen the movie. And at first, you know, I, I wasn't sure if there was my character in there, you know, my number, right? And he said, no, there was a prisoner in it with my prisoner number, but supposedly it was a composite of me and some of the other prisoners. But that's something that, especially having worked in media over the years, I never imagined there would be a character in a Hollywood movie actually supposed to be me. So that was, even though supposedly it's composite, it's got, my, it's 1037. And so that was me. So, so uh, that alone, I should really watch it one of these days. <laughs> yeah. So what does your family think of your involvement? You know, as I mentioned, my mother, she was really concerned at the time. And I didn't learn how concerned until, you know, years later. And my mother had already uh, passed away by the time I was interviewed for a Dateline episode. And so uh, they actually spent like a full day with me. They actually brought my father along and they interviewed him. But uh, that particular episode, uh, they never released it. It was an hour long episode. And then they only released uh, portions of it when the Abu Ghraib prison uh, incident happened. They had a segment that tied it in to say that, look at this, this really shows these military guards, they did things that they weren't instructed to do, but they behaved as I guess they thought they should be as guards in it. And of course, they did a lot of horrible things. So I, I really wish they had done the full hour show that I could have seen it because I was always curious if they used any of my dad in it. You know, it was something he got to share at least, you know, what it was like for him, explain how he and my mother had reacted when they saw me in it and how concerned they were for me. And I know that, or so I've read, really, that the guards didn't have any real, like, sort of set rules for being guards in a, in a prison for the experiment. Is that true? Uh, you know, I only go by, it's hearsay for me because yeah. I wasn't there for their trainings. But I do understand that they pretty much were able to, you know decide how they were going to behave. I thought they did have some guidance. And that's something that, you know, as I mentioned, that paper that was published, uh, it was a French author that uh, did it. If you can read through his paper, I think it gives a lot of insights of not just the prisoners and the guards, but also the people working with Zimbardo behind the scenes, including, I think it was Zimbardo's girlfriend at the time. And she supposedly was the one that, you know, she came and observed and realized, whoa, this is completely out of control. You got to shut this down. And even, you know, Zimbardo and the the 
you know, if they were his, uh, I don't think the term's TA, forget what it is in college, but they were his, you know, they were, you know, they were master students or doctoral students under him. They were all behaving in ways that if they had observed somebody else doing it, they probably would have realized it was inappropriate. But they were caught up in those roles too, from what I understand. And so for a better insight on that, I think that's one of the good resources. I, I forget what publication it got published in, but it was a psychology journal. Yeah, we'll definitely try and uh, get our hands on that. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, master students or the doctoral students, I mean, I can't speak for them, but maybe it was the idea of being part of this like groundbreaking thing that was happening. Well, according to that paper, they came up with the idea of the experiment. It was not Zimbardo's idea. It was a typical, you know... The professor yeah, of course, takes of course. credit for what the students do. So <laughs> that's my understanding. That and that was something that surprised thing. me after all these years. I, I can see that, though. I can see it. Be, I mean, obviously, the study had some structure. But, you know, if it was maybe more structured and maybe a little better planned and thought out, might have gotten different results, for sure. Somewhat different. Because I still think, obviously, people are going to adhere to whatever roles that they want to and do whatever they feel fits with those roles and you know you'll still have a similar outcome but we'll never know you know you had said you know some people who participated in the study their careers were maybe somewhat influenced by their experience but you were studying media studies before the experiment and then you ended up going into media studies after so why media studies well, actually, I mean, when I say me, I mean, I started out wanting to be a filmmaker, uh, ended up uh, moving into broadcasting instead, uh, more television production, you know, did some features and stuff. So, I mean, it was just always something uh, I've loved as a fan of watching a lot of TV and then also just wanting to make movies. You know, I had had, took a film class uh, at the community college, had planned to go on to, you know, a university in their film program. But again, it was odd. I couldn't transfer in, even though they accepted me as a freshman. By the time I was a junior, they didn't have enough spaces, I guess, le guess left. So I ended up going to a different school and getting into and getting a degree in television and radio broadcasting. And then just kind of, you know, hung around and, and worked in it. And I've always been kind of like, you know, I've had a direction of what I want to do, but opportunities when they arise, I'll kind of take advantage of those. So I ended up working in cable television because of an internship that came up while I was in the community college. Uh, and then, you know, that turned into a job. So even while I was finishing my degree, I was working. And so as soon as I graduated, well, I became a full-time job in that. And it was, as Ted Turner used to say, I was cable when cable wasn't cool because most people had no idea what was cable TV was in the early 70s. And then even in the uh, late 70s, it wasn't like it is today. It wasn't until around 1980 when you finally started getting all these other channels like CNN, MTV, and everything else. So the 80s, which I was still working at a company that was focused on cable, you know, that's where my career went. But along the way, uh, you know, I had a friend that was making features. I got to work on a feature with him here in the Bay Area. And that was the other thing too. 
you know, I've encouraged my students that go on to stuff. A lot of times you got to move to LA if you're going into filmmaking, even though there's a lot of opportunities elsewhere around the country and the world. Uh, in those days, boy, to make a film in the Bay Area was kind of rare. You know, most people were kind of visiting it. There are only a few that were making this their home. So when my friend made a feature here, that was that was pretty fun to be part of. You know, I've also gone along with just family and stuff. And, you know, I'm glad I stayed near my parents uh, here in the Bay Area. I had an opportunity to, when I had a company that was started and people that invested in it were in Texas, after a couple of years, they wanted to actually move it to Texas. And I'm glad I didn't choose to do that because then I was able to have the next couple, the last couple of years of my mother's life, I was able to be around her at the time. So, you know, you make different decisions on different things. Some people maybe put career as the priority. For me, uh, you know, I've taken advantage of things for the career, but also, you know, family and people you know and stuff has always been important to me too. Are you happy that you actually took part in the Stanford experiment? Oh, it was definitely a worthwhile experience for me, especially because it became so so well known and such. It's kind of like, wow, here I was. I participated in something that has influenced, or you know, at least been uh, something that so many people have been interested in over the decades. Uh, and of course, you know, I, I can think back and think, geez, I wish I had done this differently in it or that. Like I mentioned, you know, I wish I hadn't sung along with that chant. That was one of the things, you know. Or, gee, how could I not just say, well? I quit. You know, if I just said I quit, I would know. But of course, then again, you know, other things would have happened. I mean, it was just, you wonder sometimes, or at least for me over the years, you know, sometimes I, I, I go back over and say, gee, what if I had just done this instead? But, you know, you got to move on. You can't change yeah. the past. No regrets. I mean, you saying about why didn't you just say I quit? You know, we've spoken to a few people about their stories who were formerly incarcerated or currently incarcerated. And common thing is, why didn't I just ask for a lawyer? The context yeah. is different, but things that seem to be natural and obvious. And I think it's because most people are, we're so trusting of others, yeah. you know, and you don't, especially if it's somebody in authority, you don't expect them to be lying to you the whole time and just using it. It's kind of like, I, I remember when somebody I knew was in a car accident, there was insurance. It was a, it was an uninsured motorist or something like that. But the first thing we were told to do, got a hold of of an attorney because we found out the first thing the attorney said was, stop talking to the insurance company. They sound concerned about you, but they're just taking notes to say that you're all better now. You don't need any more money so they can give you the minimum. And as soon as we learned that, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, because I mean, here it is. You pay for insurance. You've been in an accident. You've been injured. It was caused by somebody else. So you would think your insurance company is there just to, oh, we're going to take care of you. No, they're there to take care of the bottom line. And that's why there's personal injury attorneys, right? <laughs> you know, they get a big chunk of money, but, you know, usually at least they are concerned for you because they get more money the more money they get for you. So it, it's, you know, I watch too many TV crime shows and law and order and all those kind of stuff. Even though I feel like there's never anything I would do, if I got arrested or in, or even in, interrogated, the first thing I would do if I remember it is, I want to talk to an attorney. Because, you know, unfortunately, you've talked to people who their lives were changed because they didn't realize I was too trusting. I just needed, to, I just wanted to explain what happened. No, you need to take that attorney. When they read you those Miranda rights, you need to say, do you understand these rights I've read to you? Yes, I want an attorney. Don't say anything. Say nothing until you get a lawyer. That's, you know what? I don't know the, if I um... should have said anything to you. Too. Oh, no. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Just just have one in your back pocket. You know, it makes it hard to trust. People. People. Do you trust people? 
you know, I usually trust them until, you know, it, it, what do they say? Uh, you know, when you trust somebody and it turns out that they've uh, lied to you and manipulated you, uh, shame on them. But if you let them do it a second time, it's shame on you. You know, the experiment hasn't been a big part of my life, but it pops up once in a while. Uh, the one thing, though, that I've told students over the years, it's like, especially when I had seniors, and I think it was coming up on like my 50th uh, high school reunion. And I told them, boy, you know, when I was your age, you know, that's when the Vietnam War happened. And because they were looking back, wow, that's a half century ago. When <laughs> I was your age, though, World War II had been 50 years before. So it's wow. like, you know, when you're going through that, it's like, wow, I can't yeah. imagine this stuff is so far behind. And now when you're 50 years in the future, you say, yeah. wow, you know, it really wasn't that long ago. I mean, we've gone through so many experiences, but it's kind of like, wow, you know, to think back a half century about something. And then also I think about the people like my grandparents and other people I knew that were alive, you know, and experiencing things so famous you know, so many years before that you study in history. I, I guess it's like all history. So getting back to the experiment where some of these things have come out in more recent years about maybe some of the behind the scenes of what really took place. Uh, it, it's kind of like, you know, history gets rewritten. And some things, just like when I was in high school, we were never taught about the uh, the Japanese Americans who were, you know, lost everything, were put in concentration camps here in America. It was like we were just, you know, told how bad the Nazis were for concentration camps. And even though those are, weren't as bad, we had a Japanese American uh, student advisor. You know, he was in charge of like uh, after school activities and stuff. And he told some of us, the seniors, that, well, yeah, I was in this concentration camp, you know, here in America. I said, what? So here was a part of history that, you know, our country has kept secret. It happens all the time, it turns out, there's stuff that, you know, how come we never heard this when we were in school? I mean, these were major things that happened. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know how long psychology classes will keep teaching the Stanford prison experiment as part of it, but it's probably good for at least, you know, one session or something to, to encapsulate, to let you know the big takeaway about how you can act in a way that might go against who you are as a person only because you think you're going along with what society expects of you. Society expects a lot out of people. <laughs> it's, it's hard to fulfill yeah. society's expectations. Should you even? What was going to say, yeah. Do you have to? Well, it's hard to question it because a lot of times if you go against what's always been done, you get struck down, right? And, and I mean, I've had that problem with students where I say, look, at, okay, I'm going to show you the way to do it before you break the rules and do it in a different <laughs> way. You have to learn these basics, right? Thank you so much, Rich, yeah. for sharing your story, your experience. And yeah, the experiment is still relevant, you know, 52 years later. Yeah. Thanks again, Rich. This was this was a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. We'd like to thank Rich for sharing his experience with us and for giving us an inside look into the experiment. You can find information about the Stanford Prison Experiment, more information about Rich, all on our website in the show notes. Be sure to like, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Follow us there, too. That's going to do it for this episode of Bound by the Cloak. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand spanking new episode. See you then.